Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Hi folks, thanks for listening to Reproductive Left. I'm guessing that many of you know there have been big changes at Mabel Wadsworth Center. Ruth Lockhart, one of our co-founders and our first executive director, has retired, and we have a new executive director, Andrea Irwin. To honor this change, I've decided to air an old interview that I did back in March of 2014 for our podcast. It's with two of our co-founders, Sharon Barker and Phil Borden. They discussed with me how they took an idea of a freestanding women's health center and made it a reality. First, I want to tell you a little bit about them. They're both retired. Sharon was the director of the Women's Resource Center at the University of Maine, and Phil Warden it was a practicing attorney in North East Harbor. He represented the center in legal matters pro bono for 30 years. I hope you enjoy the interview, and remember to stick around to the end for our Ask Mabel segment with another one of our co-founders, nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. Today she'll answer questions about pap tests. Hi Sharon and hi Phil. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Thank you for being here with me today. Um, I would love to start with having you talk a little bit about the kitchen table. I've heard this story so many times, but it never gets old, um, that the idea of Mabel Wazari Center started around a kitchen table, um, and now, 30 years later, it is a wonderful reproductive health care center. Can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. Um, well, the 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 initial vision of the Mabel Wadsworth Center and when we were first starting to think about this we were all involved with family planning in some way but this was really a, a departure from that structure and that um, way of doing business and so we really didn't have an office um, to speak of and so it was really like after work in the evening you know sitting down brainstorming thinking about things talking about what was important uh, what we needed to to make sure that we continued in, a, in what was becoming a very uh, hostile environment in women's health care. And so, yeah, it was kind of a series of uh, kitchen tables that we used to get this started. And who, who, who were around the table? Who was at the, this kitchen table? Well, it was different tables. I remember being at Phil's table <laughs> up in Parkman. Um, and uh, Ruth would often come by my place after work, and it would be at my table. Um, We'd go over to Mabel's and talk to her and check things out. And so we, ha we had some meetings of the five of us, but I don't remember there being a lot of 
Right. It really evolved out of the family planning stuff. We were all on a committee that was reviewing sex education stuff for the schools. We were supposed to be representing community values to make sure nothing really dirty or nasty got into their young kids at the schools. And I was picked because uh, I lived up in Piscataquis County and they needed geographic uh, diversity. And so that's how I got there. And I got in inspired with the other members of the, of the group. And I remember we were discussing what community values were and I came up with a list of them. You know, like it had to be truthful, shouldn't be racist, shouldn't be ageist, shouldn't be homophobic, uh, that kind of stuff. And so we would watch these tremendous films and kind of go through where these, these things. But meanwhile, you know, the Reagan administration was in there and the gag order was coming down. And the gag order was that nothing using federal funds could mention abortion as, as being a, a form of family planning. At first I said, well, it's not really family planning. You know, it's, if that family planning fails or something, but uh, they got tougher and tougher, and pretty soon it became very hostile. So the kitchen tables came kind of out of that group, uh, trying to figure out, well, what do we do? Um, Sharon herself didn't mention it, but she was getting in some kind of, I can't remember what the trouble was, but she was accused of being a visionary by family planning. Oh, and I probably not used the to say, but there's nothing worse than being <laughs> a, a visionary. <laughs> Oh, do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember <coughs> that. Uh. And then Parker Harris was having problems because he was a physician and stuff. And I remember us discussing, you know, the, the ethics of it. You know, for a physician to be aware of some medical procedures that in certain situations could be extremely helpful to the patient, being told he could not mention that to the, to the patient was, you know, to my mind, raises intense professional questions of ethics and that a, an ethical physician would say, you know, I'm not going to go along with that. And so the kitchen tables kind of arose out of saying, what can we do that, to set up an independent organization uh, specifically to get away from the, the gag order or the things of the strings attached by the federal government of telling us what we could or could not say in terms of women's uh, uh, reproductive rights. And that is one thing that makes Mabel Wadsworth Center unique, that we don't take um, any federal funding, so we're privately funded. Um, and I also did want to mention that you brought up some of our some of the other co-founders, um, Ruth Lockhart, who is our executive director, and Terry Marley DeRozier, who's our nurse practitioner. We'll hear from her later in the podcast in our Ask Maple segment. Um, and I wanted to mention that we will be sitting down with both of them later um, this year to to get their perspective on the founding of the center. Um, unfortunately, Mabel sign Wadsworth is no longer with us so we won't be able to yeah. interview her. Um, Phil, I did want to ask, probably you get this question a lot, but I wanted to ask what it was like to be the only male co-founder of a women's health center and what it's like for you to be one of the few men at our events. Well, first of all, it's very flattering. It's, it's kind of an ego trip for me. Um, <laughs> You know, I had started out in, in the late 60s in SDS, and we would worked around civil rights and, you know, the idea that white people had a special obligation to support uh, black people was uh, when we fought for black studies. It was the idea was both that the black students had a right to have their own studies and that they could control, plus white people ought to also be taking black studies because they are the problem, not the black people. Yeah. And, you know, there's that that wraparound. To me, through in the 70s, as the women's movement ro rose up, uh, it seemed very analogous to me. Uh, and, and that, of course, uh, women have a right to organize on their own and set up their own organizations. 
but men also have the responsibility to understand that. I mean, in, in a very real sense, uh, uh, we're the problem. I mean, you know, sexism warps both, but they don't warp them equally. You know, just like racism warps white people as well as, as black people, but one is an oppressed and one is an oppressor, and that's why I've never gotten into the kind of the men's liberation alternative about, well, we're just as oppressed and we ought to form our own <laughs> thing similar to the women's movement. I've, what I've seen it more as is that uh, men have a special responsibility to have solidarity with the women's movement because they are, in fact, oppressed by the current kind of patriarchal uh, values. Uh, also, uh, my own experience with feminism, which is often accused of kind of being man-hating and all that, is it's really just the opposite. I mean, there's, there's they're downright eager to have men be allies with them, and uh, and their voice treated me very, very, very well, and uh, almost a little too flattering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely need the support of men in our in the work that we do. We won't get anywhere without a joint effort. Yeah, but it, it's important that the support be support. You know, sometimes men will come in and kind of like, well, I know better, and you know, here's how we ought to do it, and uh, stuff like that. And you know, we have had some problems with that. Um, so, this is our 30th anniversary. 30 years ago, 1984 is when this kitchen table conversation started. Is this where you thought the center would be? Well, I'll start off with that. I definitely did not. I did not <coughs> think it was going to make it. I mean, basically what we were dealing with is there was no resources at all. I was willing to do free legal work of setting up a corporation, which is no real problem, but uh, the idea of this was somehow going to turn in, in, into a, a clinic didn't seem terribly realistic to me. I mean, really what it was is it was about four other women. They were literally lifting themselves up by their own hair uh, and just doing this totally independently. And at the same time saying, you know, we're not going to accept any government grants, you know, because we, we want to be independent. You know, one of the most amazing things to me about all those conversations at the kitchen table was one of the primary concerns of the women involved was to make sure that the organization wouldn't sell out. I mean, that was much more, <laughs> much more important to us than the practicalities of kind of business and how do we set up our accounts and that kind of stuff. All that kind of stuff took place on, uh, I think Sharon had a Tandy 1000 uh, computer <laughs> that uh, we would use that computer and then Adam would play games on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that is. I'm too young, I guess. <laughs> but, um, it was prim primitive. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I'm so proud to work at the center. Um, that it, because it's independently funded, we could not exist without the support of the community. So it, it really means that we're wanted here and that and we were built out of the community. It makes me very proud. Um, Sharon, do you want to talk a little bit about? Um, is this where you saw? Well, not exactly, because I never could have envisioned what the healthcare system would be like at this point, because 30 years ago it was very different. And so we had an awful lot more latitude in thinking what the possibilities might be. Uh, I think the financial thing and just the whole, you know, institutional barriers were real. Um, my conviction was that I had seen the dramatic change in women's lives with very simple experiences. If they felt comfortable and in control of their reproduction and women's health care, they could really go on to uh, being a much stronger person. And, and it, it could happen very quickly. I saw that in family planning. So I knew it was something that was going to appeal to women. Um, 
you know, so that was the broad range of women who needed advocacy in this process. The wealth and the support, um, I just felt that there had to be some pushback against the real conservative momentum that was happening that would, that would keep women down and, and roll back some of the rights that we had. And I, you know, you know it's like a, a, a conviction or a hope that that would resonate with people to support us. Um, but it was like whether they did or not, I felt like we really had to make the effort. We really had to do it. It was, it was a, a work of conscience, I thought. Uh, and no, we, we thought that, that, you know, we'd have a big, in our dream, you know, we're going to have a big training institute and, you know, this huge, mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't, we dreamt uh, very big, but we, you know, very incrementally uh, grew this. And, and Phil's absolutely right. I mean, there were some really core values that we, it was like, this is what's important. One was abortion, one was lesbian health care support, and one was the independence. Uh, to keep the government out of our business, and, and you know, and frankly, um, I think the the founders, uh, you know, we went for a long time on nothing, and I think we took turns, kind of coming to the fore on what was needed at that particular point in time, and certainly the legal work has uh, increased a whole lot in you know over the 30 years, just because the the constraints in the healthcare system have really developed, but I, you know. Yeah, I thought we could do it in some form. I thought we could do it. And there was an interesting diversity, too, of, of ideas. You know, there were some that were more interested in kind of delivering health care, and then there were some who were more interested in kind of political advocacy of, of uh, organizing the community and stuff like that. I was much more into the political advocacy and uh, not so much the delivering of health services, but the, the fact that we could do both, you know, that we could have a three-pronged strategy uh, really made us much stronger, I think. I was more interested in the policy stuff too, and I thought the best way we could get at that really was through education, you know, b being able to not only provide the services, but to be able to be articulate spokespeople for women uh, and their rights, uh, which I thought would, would bring, you know, bring people with us. I love the, I think the three-pronged approach is really important. and. Um, I get to do a variety of things at the center, so I get, I get to work as a clinical assistant and then I get to use my experiences as a clinical assistant in the outreach work and the education work that I do, and I think that's really unique to Mabel Wadsworth Center, and feel, I feel really honored to be able to do that work. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. Today's interview is from March of 2014, where I sit down and interview Sharon Barker and Phil Warden, two of Mabel Wadsworth Center's co-founders. So, we have, I have one more question to ask both of you before we wrap it up and move into the Ask Mabel segment, where we'll sit down with um, nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRosier, um, which is... Where do you see the center going? It's 30 years. Where will it be 30 years from now? What's your vision? I think that's in your hands. <laughs> you know, the inspiration for me is what are younger women going to be doing? And uh, uh, the idea that women like you are, are uh, participating in that is, to my mind, probably the most important thing. And you know, as, as founders, I think our most important role right now is to set up a transition in, 
in, in a certain way for us to step aside and uh, uh, you know that I have real strong faith in people like you Thank continuing you. this on and expanding it. Well, in, in such a changing society, I think one of the things that's going to be critical for Mabel Wadsworth Center is to be somewhat flexible in, you know, perhaps its, its approach in some ways. Um, to me, uh, the, thi the things that matter are, are, again, those basic foundational premises, uh, you know, protect abortion rights, uh, support lesbian health care, uh, and maintain an independence so that we can really be a voice that is, uh, isn't affected by societal pressures or government money or anything like that. And so I have, you know, I have no idea. Um, I really, the organizational development of it isn't as important to me as it is as the work continues in a way that really, really meets the women. And, you know, we could continue to grow. I think the potential for Mabel Wadsworth Center is, is huge. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, you know, politically or financially or anything else. But for me, I think that we've lit um, fires in communities. I think there's a lot of women out there, as well as men, that carry the message uh, and that understand the basic importance of the work. And so I have faith that whatever, whatever form Mabel Wadsworth Center takes, the work will go on and it will be successful. Well, I want to thank both of you for being on the show today. Um, I love talking to the founders and hearing about how this awesome organization got started. Stick around. We'll be right back to answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment with nurse practitioner Terry Marley DeRozier. Hi, and welcome to Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner and co-founder, Terry Marley DeRozier. She's here to answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. If you have any questions, please email educate at mabelwadsworth.org. Terry, we have three questions for you today, and they're all about pap tests. So let's start by having you just explain what a pap test is. Good afternoon, Abby. A pap test is a simple test used to find abnormal cells of the cervix. When abnormalities are detected early, they are almost 100% curable. Pap tests are worth it. Okay, so question number one, um, and as always, we keep these questions anonymous. Question one is, I'm a lesbian. I've never had sex with men. Do I need to get a pap test? That's a great question, Abby. Regardless of your gender identity, who you have sex with or how you have sex, if you have a cervix, you need a pap test in most situations. If you've had a hysterectomy, you may still need screening testing. If a woman has never had sexual contact, the risk of developing cervical cancer is very small. However, if a woman has ever had sexual contact, there is a risk of developing cervical cancer, and regular pap tests are important. Cervical cancer is usually caused by human papillomavirus, that's our belief today, which is commonly uh, spread through genital skin-to-skin uh, -skin contact during sexual intimacy. 
This includes female to female sex. Also, some lesbians may have either had sex with men at some time in their lives, currently may be having sex with men, or have partners uh, who have sex with men and women. There's currently no evidence to suggest that HPV infection rates are lower in lesbians. Anyone who has ever had sex can have HPV. It's so common that four to five people with HPV, uh, four to five people will have HPV at some time in their lives. Currently, international research shows that HPV has been found in women who have never had sexual uh, contact with men. Women to women transmission of HPV can occur either through direct genital contact, cuts, abrasions, or through shared use of sexual toys. The rates of cervical abnormalities for lesbians are similar to that of heterosexual women. Abnormalities have been found on pap tests even in women who have reported no sexual history with men. So we use the same recommendations for uh, lesbians with regards to pap test frequency as heterosexual women. Okay, our second question. I am a transgender man. I have not had a hysterectomy and I know I need to get a pap test. But those exams are awful and triggering. Do you have any tips to make the experience bearable? The first thing I'd like to say is that it's so important to feel comfortable with your practitioner. So communication is definitely a key. Um, I would encourage you to let your practitioner know that you have discomfort with this exam and together you may be able to find um, a better way to make the exam happen for you. Um, like some folks feel that if they elevate the head of the bed uh, or the table and can visualize the uh, clinician um, better, that they have a better experience with less anxiety. Um, it's absolutely appropriate to be asking questions. Um, if you aren't comfortable with the terminology that your clinician is using to, you know, let the person know um, that you prefer other words, um, always feel comfortable to um, stop the exam if you feel like you need a break. Uh, to help you relax, it's important to take long, slow, deep breaths, and this actually does help to relax the muscles uh, inside the vagina and help it open a little more efficiently. Remember, you are the one in control of your exam, and if anything feels uncomfortable, uh, to just let your clinician know. Um, it's also fine to bring a friend or family member and to let them know in advance how they can support you. And if you're uncomfortable with penetration vaginally, it might be something to perhaps practice at home on your own or with a partner before you come in for the pap test. Give yourself a pep talk and remind yourself what a good thing you're doing for your long-term uh, general health to have a pap test done. Again, remember that when uh, cervical changes are detected early, they are 100% curable almost across the board. And our last question, I am confused by the new PAP guidelines. How often do I need to be getting a PAP test? If we do not have any history of abnormal PAP tests ever in our medical history, these guidelines um, will apply to all um, persons with a cervix. If you have a history of abnormal pap tests, that is something to discuss with your own individual clinician um, 
for individual recommendations. So these recommendations are specifically for um, the person with a cervix who has no history of abnormal pap smears. For women under the age of 21, no pap smear at all is um, recommended. So therefore, uh, young women who may be anxious about coming in to talk about contraception for fear that they may have to have a pap test may be pleasantly surprised that they can access contraceptive um, services without the pap test being performed. For women in age uh, group of 21 to 29, um, pap test uh, every three years is currently advised. For women in the age group of 30 to 65, pap testing with HPV testing at the same time or co-testing is the preferred method. And if both the pap test and the HPV co-testing are negative, that pap test needs to be repeated only every five years. If a pap test alone is done without the co-testing for HPV, the pap should be performed every three years. This is an acceptable way to monitor cervical health as well. For women over the age of 65 who have had no history of abnormalities uh, of their pap test or have not had an abnormality for at least 10 years, no further screening is necessary. After hysterectomy, if the woman, excuse me, if the uh, client no longer has a cervix, there is no need for future uh, pap testing. If a hysterectomy is done and the cervix remains, this is sometimes called a partial hysterectomy, if the cervix remains, then the same recommendations uh, for pap testing would be done uh, consistent with the woman's age. Some clients have asked if they have had HPV vaccine, does this change their pap test frequency? And currently the recommendation is still age specific, uh, whether you've been vaccinated or not. And I'm gonna follow up with one more question, which is just, um, we use the slogan, every woman, every year. So when we're saying that, we're talking about an annual exam. What's the difference between an annual exam and a pap test? Abby, that's such a great question. One of my uh, biggest concerns with the change in the pap testing frequency recommendations is that women will hear that they don't need a pap for three to five years and may not feel that it's necessary to have a pelvic exam or a gynecologic exam uh, done any sooner than that. Um, our approach here uh, is to recommend that every woman has a pelvic exam and a breast exam every year, regardless of whether it's a year when the pap test is due or not. Um, there are things that a practitioner clinician will look for um, externally around the genitalia that may need attention and have nothing to do with a cervical um, pap test. Um, so we still encourage women to remember this little slogan, every woman, every year, and let your clinician decide with you when the pap test is indicated. Great. Thank you, Terry, and thank you all for listening.
For more information about Mabel Wadsworth Center, visit www.mabelwadsworth.org or Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center on Facebook. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. I'm Abby Strout. Tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4 p.m. right here at WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming everywhere at www.weru.org.